Today's Bible reading comes from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 25, and can be found in your Blue Church Bibles on page 1220, and it will also be on the screen behind us. So that's 1 Peter, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, You believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from the heaven, sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, 
Love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. So imagine that you're in an orchestra. You can play an instrument, pick your favourite one. You're in the orchestra and uh, you begin to play, but the sound's terrible. It's horrific, in fact. So shocking. And so you realise you're out of tune. And so you decide to tune to the person next to you. Just find another instrument and say, I'll tune to you, let's play together. And we each tune to the person next to us. It still sounds horrible because everyone's tuning to someone that's next to them. What you need to do as an orchestra, I found it this week, to tune properly is you need to have one pitch, one source. An orchestra tunes itself to a very, very uh, unique frequency. It's called 440 hertz, which is the A note. The A note is played by the oboist because the oboist is the least instrument affected by humidity and other weather conditions. You would say it's the most constant. And so once everyone's tuned to the letter A from the oboist, you then all play the same, and it sounds beautiful. But that's an apt example of uh, our life. Often we go around trying to tune ourselves to the sound of everything around us. But the question we, we often hear that, sorry, we often hear that as getting balance. I'm just working out this season of life. I'm just going to tune myself to that. This is what I need. And, but the question you have to ask to that is what are you actually tuning yourself to? Balance to what? Tune to what? And so as we start this three-week series um, called Compelled, all about who we are as the people of God, because of God's grace towards us, we believe as Christians that the the, the tune, the A note, to extend that metaphor a little bit more, is the gospel of Jesus. He is the constant that our life is made for. Gospel simply means the announcement, the declaration of what Jesus has done on our behalf to put us right with God. And so we tune ourselves to another, all because of what Jesus has done. And that means we're compelled, not by force, don't think forceful compelling here, but by the love of Jesus to live for the glory of God, not the glory of ourselves. And today, I want to show you why from 1 Peter 1, there's 25 verses, why we are all going to be about Jesus, why this gospel is the only tune which we need as individuals and as a church, why at Trinity Church Golden Grove, we're never going to stop talking about Jesus. And I hope this brings clarity towards us. Because you see, we must always be intentional about the gospel of Jesus in our lives, shaping our life around it. Because if we're not intentional, we will default to something else, to shaping our lives, our church, around other things. Some good things, for sure. But certainly not the gospel. And that's never a good thing. So the question is, for us, for me, for you, what about you? Are you tuned to the gospel of Jesus? Is he your A note, your 440 megahertz pitch in life? And maybe you're visiting with us and it's great to have you here and, and you don't know what you think about Jesus yet. You're not quite sure what it means to believe and accept this gospel that we've just spoken about. Then I hope today you'll get a really good snapshot of what our community is going to be like at Trinity Church Golden Grove and that you can keep investigating Jesus for yourself. And I'd love to talk more about that after the service as well. And so to do this today, I have two points um, to explain why we're all about Jesus. The first is in verse 12, to uh, first 12 verses, sorry, because the gospel's precious. 
We're about Jesus because the gospel is precious to us. And second, in verse 13 to 25, the gospel defines us. So the precious gospel and the defining gospel. And you can write any notes you have in the monthly booklet. There's a, a spare page every week for you to do that. So Peter, he's an eyewitness to, the, to Jesus. And he's writing 30 years after Jesus' resurrection to a group of multi-ethnic churches that have experienced and are experiencing turbulent times because of their faith. And what I love about Peter... Is, and his personality, his style of writing, is he just lands everything back to Jesus. Even after 30 years, it's the same hope, the same Jesus. Time, change, suffering, pain, don't rip apart the gospel. Peter's constantly wooing them, and us, back to Jesus, back to the cross, back to his death for our sins, and the grace that he gives us. He's saying to them, sit in that. Rest in that. Suffer in that. Speak about that. Think about that. Live in that. And that's the first reason we're all about Jesus, because the gospel is precious to us. And he begins by writing in a remarkable way, especially because these people have very little Jewish background. He calls them exiles. It means you're staying for a time in a strange place. It has the idea of living temporary or not yet home. You're on a journey. And while Peter's readers do live in a home, in a, in a house, in a city, in a province, in the places listed in verse 1, we saw them, because of their allegiance to Jesus, Peter's getting them to think, to remember that they're exiles in a spiritual sense. For some, they have indeed lost their home, I'm sure. They've lost jobs because of their faith. However, they belong to a postcode that's not of this world. Peter wants them to remember their true home so they don't make a home out of the journey. The sojourn in this life can be delightful so as long as our true desire for home is fixed in our minds. And when this life is no fun, we're to look even ahead further to what is to come. But it's more than that. Peter calls them God's elect exiles. And that draws back to the history of Abraham in Genesis because elect means to be chosen. Peter's reminding them when God chose them, he put them on a path and a journey towards a new heaven and earth through the gospel of Jesus, and God's doing what he promised to Abraham long ago, land, offspring, blessing. They've been saved by a missional God, called out of this world to live as a chosen exile, chosen by God, mind you. You see, conversion is not a magical transport home, says James Smith, some kind of magic flu powder that gets you to heaven. It doesn't pluck you off the road in life, it just changes how you travel the road in life, you see? Or to use the image from before, it retunes you to something else. And that's all in accordance with the foreknowledge of God, the Father. And the same is true for you and me. God knows your life. God is the first reason that the gospel is precious to us. And that's why we're always going to be about Jesus. And that's a wonderful truth to hold. God is working his perfect will in your lives right at this moment, all of last year, even all the change you've faced right now, because we're on the journey, we haven't arrived at home. And it's for his glory and our good as we journey on. Not only that, but the gospel is the apex of our praise. It's the pinnacle. We're people who praise Jesus because we've been given a living hope in verse 3. And I love the idea of living hope. It's not just hope. 
It's a live hope. It's hope that's drunk 10 cans of Red Bull. It's active. It's exuberant. It's beautiful. It has joy pulsating from it. It can't die or be quenched by times or trials or suffering. It's growing in expectation, because it's alive, you see, of what Jesus has done. It's being more and more secure in life every day, week, month, and year of our life. It's a living hope because we have a living God. And that hope comes in a strange way through the death of our God, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So living hope is a hope in the living Jesus because he's died and risen again. And the resurrection changes are here and now. Look at verse 5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power into the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Shielded only gives half the sense of, of what Peter's getting at. He's saying it's, it's sustaining as well as shielding. Sustaining and guarding at the same time. And it's through our faith that we're guarded in this life. And that's an important way of phrasing it. So you see, God's power energizes our faith and sustains our faith in God. You see, the whole Christian life is actually, the end point is God himself, not you and me. We're swept up into salvation history for the glory of him, not the glory of us. We are being guarded by him so that he gets all the glory, not me. And we're journeying in this life towards a future salvation when God will be glorified and magnified in our lives like never before. And in that, verse 6, you rejoice. And this is the first time that Peter actually tells us what to do in his letter. Six verses, and he hasn't told us anything that we're to do yet. Every word up until this point is functioning as what we call a participle. It's a verby adjective type word. And he's building up like a crescendo. Think music again. And he's saying all these things. He's saying, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Thinking. And he hasn't actually told us what to do. Then he just says, comes out and says, just rejoice. You see, because of the security we have in Jesus that comes from the Father and sending the Son in electing us and being a known exile in this life to giving us new birth and a living hope, securing a future, guarding and protecting us in this life by his power because of his wonderful position we have in Christ, rejoice! That's who you are. Value and view your life, Peter's saying, from the perspective of eternity. Even though you may have some trials right now or suffer grief. And Peter's vague here. He doesn't name them. And I think that's intentional so you can actually, you can personalize that. Any trial, he's not being specific. And he says, for a little while, you may have to. And again, you're suffering your grief. The reference is eternity, not the days or the years. We've been flipped to look at it from a different angle. And in these trials, our faith grows stronger Because the proven genuineness of our faith, verse 7, is of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even those refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. So fire refines things, precious gold. Genuine faith emerges from a trial. Now, if you've lost everything you have because of uh, Jesus, if you're suffering or feeling the squeeze financially or in some other way, the temptation in all of this is to desire gold, or notes, or coins, or more zeros in your bank account, or just the black in the bank account if you can't have more zeros. Because by those things, we often measure our life, don't we? We measure security, value, identity, happiness, hope, future, by the gold that we have, right? And Peter's saying something shocking. Hey, guys, you actually have something already that is worth more than that gold. It's your faith. 
And he says that because we don't have to worry about money or what we do have or don't have because the cross of Jesus proves God's care for us and gives us all the security we could ever need. Moreover, all the suffering results in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed, verse 7. See, the opposite of joy is not sadness or sorrow. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. Yet Jesus gives us a living hope. And so our joy lands in the uncreated God. And that's huge. It's not a straight line to glory. The road is filled with twists and turns and bumps, challenges, long, deep valleys of uncertainty and confusion. The temptation we face is to make the road our life, to make the journey the destination. But our hope is looking ahead to when someone will say, welcome home, and knowing how to navigate life until that time. And when we get home, the result of our trials on the road will be turned into praise and glory of Jesus. You see, what Peter wants them to swallow is their destiny is secure. All the things that are truly worth living and staking your life on can't be taken away from you. You can, as Peter's readers found out, lose your job, your home, your family, your friends, your reputation, your honor, control over your body through sickness or accident, your dignity, even all your stuff. Because you're aligned to Jesus. But you can't lose your identity in Christ or your final salvation because you have a living hope. And that's why it's all about Jesus. Our hope is in him. Our joy is in him. Our future inheritance is in him. Our suffering is known by him and is being used for his good purpose to bring glory to his name and make us more secure in him. And the sad thing is when we forget that the best is yet to come, we often become irritated and frustrated, we have a pity party, we grumble, we fight for control, we wrap our identity in something else other than Jesus, in the signposts and service stations in this life on the way to something else, all because here and now is is, is something that it's not supposed to be. We're upset that the tent we're living in isn't the mansion, so we yell at the walls wondering why nothing actually changes. And then Peter unpacks this more. He says, right now we live by faith, not by sight, verse 8. You see, not having seen Jesus, Peter had, his readers hadn't, we haven't. That's actually not a problem, because faith has its own eyes, you see. Look at how Peter describes the eyes of faith. You love him, though you've never seen him. You believe in him. You're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So imagine it like this. You're at a restaurant. Pick your favorite place, and you sit down new place maybe never been to and you, you, you see the kitchen door swinging open people come out with all the food and every time it opens you get this waff of a waff a whiff of the food and, um, and you hear that the pop of the wine bottle is opening and the smell comes over too and you sit there and you go hmm, yeah it's good and you're at the table with everyone else and you can, you can kind of you're looking at the menu and you go, yeah, that looks great. Well, I can smell it. And you see it coming out, just a foretaste of what's to come. And, you, and, and there's joy and anticipation of what will be. This is, I mean, this, this picture is the best. Someone's paying for this. It's, it's not your bill you're picking up. So this is a five-star, fantastic place. And the coffee machine's going in the back corner and you can see the dessert tray. And you just, this is amazing. I, but you've got nothing in front of you yet. You've got a menu. And you smell it, and you anticipate it, and it's exciting, and it's happy, and you're filled with joy. You don't see the smell, but you know it's there because you know the other things that are around remind you of that. The unseen joy is palpable. And in the same way, the gospel is like that for us too. 
We have not seen the full meal that it will be coming, but we have whiffs of it here and now in our hearts, in our church, through the, the Word of God. As we understand Jesus more and more, we love Him, though we've never seen Him. So that's why the gospel is precious. And the gospel defines us too. So think back to the orchestra metaphor. If we've been tuned to the gospel, we can now play life properly. To use the words of Peter, starting at verse 13, he says, if we've been tuned to the, oh sorry, um, with minds that are fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. You know, you can only be holy when you're made holy. You can only obey out of love and faith when you've been awoken to your greatest love and through faith's eyes see Jesus. We can only set our hope on Jesus and suffer well when we realize that Jesus suffered far more on the cross for my sin and is preparing a place of immense joy that vastly outweighs anything here. So our obedience, our subscription to a morality that is holy in God's eyes is all because of his grace at work within us through his spirit. Verse 16 references Leviticus 11 when God gave the command to be holy. And the people of God pretty soon realized they couldn't actually do it. God's goodness and beauty, his holy and glory, glory, his glory and holiness, it made them realize they were sinful. You know, the closer you get to something good, the more aware of how ungood you are. You get a sense of this when you go around a group of people who may have, have studied things that you know nothing about. I heard a podcast this week about a mathematician, an elite group of people in London called the Society of Something. And it's so elite that you only get an invite. And it's the quintessential carpet wall with big pictures everywhere, brandy kind of cups in the corner. <laughs> um, and if I walked in there, and I'm sure some of you walked in there too, you would get a very big sense of how much you don't know about stuff. And in this podcast, the guy said who was interviewing, he said, just tell me what a conversation's like. And I won't even repeat it because I just embarrassed myself. But he, he had this conversation and said, you know this theory of this, isn't it? And he just said, wow, I, I know nothing what you said. The point is you get a sense of how little you know when you go into that group. The closer you get to something good like God, the more you realize how ungood you are. And so we need something to both redeem us, to make us holy or good, and to empower us to live holy, you see. And studying a few more years actually isn't going to cut it. And then he says in verse 17 to 19, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so he says all this about living holy, and then he turns to the fear of God to remind us how costly the redemption that we have is or was. You see, there should be a natural fear of God. God our Father, that's important. We don't fear an impersonal force or a feeling. God is our Father. And then back in verse 4, if you remember, Peter said, your faith is more precious than gold. And now he contrasts gold again with the blood of Jesus. You weren't redeemed with a costly amount of money. You were redeemed by something more valuable. The precious blood of the Son of God, who made all the gold veins in the crusts of the earth, who implanted mineral deposits into the depths of the ground, this one, he's the one who redeemed you and saved you. So fear you would ever treat the blood of Jesus and the love of the Father as rubbish. And when our behavior isn't in line with the God who redeemed us, 
We're doing just that. You're telling Jesus his blood isn't good enough. So here's a way to think about it. I heard this this week. I didn't make it up. I'm not that amazing. So imagine a father um, has a daughter who's kidnapped. And the ransom's required, a million dollars or two million or ten. Pick a number. The family doesn't have it, so they sell everything they have. Cars, house, boat, um, everything. They take out a loan. It breaks them, costing them absolutely everything they have. But they get the money and they go to the drop that they've told. They walk in the field and put the suitcase down with the million dollars sitting in there. And then the girl comes out and she picks it up and she walks back to her captives. Captors. She delivers it. That's the agreement. But then instead of running to the father's arms of gratitude, she looks at him and she sticks up her hand and says, sucker. And then walks away with her boyfriend and a million dollars. And so we fear doing that. Fear treating the ransom of Jesus' blood and the father that way. Fear treating God as a little God. And because of Jesus' blood, we now have what I call ethical clarity to live and behave as God's holy people, both individually and as a community, as verse 22 says. And we'll explore the community of God's people more next week as we gather. So what commands is ethical story that he sweeps us into, how we live our faith, that is at odds with others who do not know that God. Peter wants us to have clarity on the truth we obey which comes through the same gospel that saved us in verse 23, which is the word. And therefore, in light of all that, it really has to be about Jesus, does it not? It can't be about anything or anyone else. A nice venue won't cut it. A lovely coffee machine isn't going to cut it. The perfect relationships aren't going to make it happen. None of that is actually what we're going to be all about. Those things are important and valuable, and we care about them. We want to make your time with us welcoming. But we're going to be all about Jesus. And this means three things for us as the people of Grove, as we go forward into this week and to every other week. We're going to be word people. People who regularly have the word of God in our hearts and our minds and hands and churches and families. We will speak about what Jesus has done and and what he says into the problems we face, into the sufferings of our life, into the struggles that we have, so that we can hear the gospel of grace and have our hearts transformed once again. This means we'll have gospel conversations with our kids after school, with our partner. We'll ask people, what, what, what is Jesus doing in your life? How is he at work? How are we living holy? How are we praising him today? Word and prayer, praise, the foundations of what we do. That's the core business, and it's simple and refreshing, and it's going to stay the same. We're also going to see ourselves and others the way Jesus does. You know, how Peter describes his readers in the first 12 verses, this is who we are in Christ, and you and me. Elect exiles, a living hope, faith more precious than God, praising God for our salvation. This is how we're going to see ourselves as the church. And it's how we're going to treat others. If it's true for you in Christ, it's true for me in Christ and others. Which means I rest in the gospel because I don't have to get God or anyone else to love me. He loves me already. I take risks. I use my gifts all for the sake of God's mission and for his glory. It means my grumbling has actually been redeemed. You know, Jesus has redeemed your grumbling hearts. I'll not throw verbal hand grenades at others or make snarky remarks and in my own way. I'm joyful in Christ. And if his word is the foundation for what we do. If his grace is permeating every, every conversation, every relationship, there's no room for that. There's no need for that. I'll see you the way Jesus sees me. 
And finally, it means we're going to plan to obey even though we can't plan to suffer, which means we're going to face everything that's come into our lives with Jesus. You know, you can't actually plan to suffer. You can plan to obey. Peter says you might have to suffer at the start. Some of you have suffered and are suffering and maybe not, but will. I don't know. You don't know. You can't plan that, but you can plan to obey. Because we're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus and we have a faith more precious than gold, God knows that and God's got your back. He's the pastor of your soul, Peter says in verse 225. Therefore, I'll commit myself to the true shepherd, the true pastor, Jesus. And so as a church, we're going to be all about Jesus. What about you? Will you be all about Jesus too? Will you join us to be all about Jesus and take him to others? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. In your wise, infinite wisdom, you sent Jesus to be the redeemer, the rescuer of our souls that you've put us in this community here, not for any other reason than to proclaim your praise of what you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, that in all the trials and all the suffering, you, you give us a living hope because you are the living God. So help our hearts and minds to be fixed front and center, all about Jesus. May we take the word into our lives and our hearts, our communities, our families. May we see one another the way you do. And Father, may we plan to obey you even though we can't plan to suffer, because we know that the God who has saved us and redeemed us and has set us on a journey towards eternity has got our backs. And so, Jesus, thank you for your grace once more. Amen.